thank you, Nicholas uh, and Olga, for inviting us uh, today. And uh, very pleased to be closing uh, what appears to be a very well-attended conference. Uh, we know it's, uh, it's uh, the last panel before the drinks, so we'll try to make it uh, as entertaining and give you something to, to talk about um, at the reception. Um, I'd say, you know, we, I've done this panel at many, many events over the years, uh, especially with Capital Link. And uh, I remember the days where we were talking about the distress in the market, uh, non-performing loans, funds circling around for opportunities and, um, and uh, restructurings and, and the likes. But um, the, last, uh, the last few years seems to be a, a rather different market, um, one that um, has enabled um, far greater returns and, and opportunities for the traditional shipping investors. Um, institutional investors still play a very significant role and we're going to examine today where the opportunities lie, what type of trades, what type of sectors um, and in this environment where geopolitical changes, uh, sanctions, uh, regulations, uh, environmental laws, etc. play a big impact in the, uh, both in the cost capital and the operational side of the businesses, we will also touch upon how this um, uh, impact in, in you know, capital allocations and investment decisions. Um, we have a great panel uh, with us comprising of uh, fund managers, uh, institutional investors, operators, and owners. Um, and I would like uh, very briefly to have each of our panelists introduce themselves and then we can uh, kick it off. Christian. Thank you, uh, panel. So, Christian Sinitos, uh, um, I'm part of a team at, uh, at Blackhawk that uh, invests in to the infrastructure sector. Um, so infrastructure for us means energy infrastructure, uh, natural resources infrastructure, it means uh, transportation and logistics infrastructure, and it also means digital infrastructure. That's how we've defined our, our mandate. Um, in terms of the, the marine space, the marine space is, is, uh, is a sector that, that, that we, you know, we have invested into historically and continue to invest, uh, invest into, but with certain parameters that, uh, that, that we typically solve for. So we look for, as an infrastructure investor, we look for a certain degree of downside protection, which in this industry you, you only get through contract cover. And that means that a big chunk of the shipping market is, is not really in scope uh, for us, so, but a certain portion is in scope, um, and that is uh, the, the part of the market where medium to longer term contracts are um, available, are, um, are possible. Um, in terms of the investments that we've made in the, in the broader marine space, uh, the first investment that we made was actually back in almost 10 years ago, in uh, 2014, where we invested into a portfolio of FPSOs um, in, in Southeast Asia, which worked quite well for us. Uh, it was a long-term contracted uh, infrastructure investment, uh, critical infrastructure for the, the oil and gas producers, um, and um, there was not much residual value reliance. Contract extensions were, were upside. Uh, that was our first you know, adventure in the, in the marine and the maritime uh, space. Much more recently in 2021, and, and I'm sure most people in the room are aware of this, uh, we um, took private uh, gas log uh, with the support of the, the existing, the key, two key existing shareholders. Um, and that means that we, are, we now, uh, since then, have a, you know, a, a, a presence in the LNG shipping 
um, space as well. Those are the two, the two main investments in the, in the marine space. But going forward, it is a market that we are uh, we're actively um, looking into. Um, but again, looking, at, looking for contract cover um, and, of course, long-term trends that are, that are supportive, which we'll talk about Thank later. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks we'll for touch having on that. No yeah. pleasure. Uh, Vangelis? Thank you, Bano. Uh, good afternoon, everyone from my side as well. Thank you for staying so late with us here. Uh, my name is Vangelis Adzigiannis. I work with GMS. Uh, GMS is the world's largest uh, cash buyer of ships for recycling, uh, ships and offshore assets in particular. Uh, GMS has executed, uh, since its uh, incorporation in 92, more than 2,000 transactions on that front. Uh, and then uh, in the past few years, uh, we have decided to expand further in the ship owning side with uh, Lila Global, which is currently uh, operating about uh, 40 vessels, uh, varying from small handies on the dry front up to capes. Most of our dry tonnage actually is in the cape segment, uh, but simultaneously also uh, diversifying through chemical tankers, containers, and so on. Thank you. Thank you, Vigel. It's very nice to have you here today. Um, over to Darren. Hi, Darren Maupin. I'm the founder of Pilgrim Global, which is a stri stressed, distressed uh, hedge fund, and also founder of um, Anglo International, which is a dry bulk ship owner, privately held. We've been, we're not, we're generalists. Um, we've been involved in shipping, in conventional shipping sectors starting in 2016, and have moved across dry bulk, container ships, um, and, and tankers and wet um, in various public and private structures. And um, we're working now more with offshore. So. Thank you, Darren. Um, Peter? Peter Wiening, uh, founder of Swiss Marine, dry bulk operator, pure specialist. Core of our business is and has been trading of dry bulk ships. We currently run around about uh, 200 ships from Ultramax to Cape Size. Recently, we also tried to use that knowledge of this specialized industry in investing more in the dry bulk space. We, we're becoming a small ship owner and we're investing in both private companies and enlisted uh, bonds and shares in our space. Thank you. And over to Nicolas, and I'll also ask the first question for Nicolas following his introduction so that we can keep going and uh, see at Tufton how they position their funds today, both on the listed and the private side in terms of the opportunities. If you can start with the, the initial commentary on that. Sure. Thank you, Pano. So I'm Nicolas Tiragalas. I am the uh, CIO and president of Tufton. Tufton is probably the oldest investment manager with a sp specific uh, mandate to invest in the shipping and offshore space. So um, we have a, uh, today over time we have invested a lot more capital. Today we manage about one billion in equity. We have about 45 ships in our various public and um, private uh, investment mandates. We recently, we haven't even announced that, we have recently raised significant new pocket of capital, which is going to be somewhere between up to a billion in equity, which is meant to invest in um, 
green transition, uh, sort of, of course, it's not, we're not the first ones to say that, but um, that, is, that seems to be the, the appetite of the investors these days. And um, like what Christian was saying, it's, it's, around, it's around yield and around cover. Um, in, in, um, when it comes to your question about, so, so, you know, we have two publicly listed uh, vehicles, income trusts, one in the UK under the ticker ship and one in Norway, which IPO'd and a lot of people previously in other panels talked about, um, you know, difficulty in, in sort of new IPOs. We actually IPO'd a company last year with a small fleet of seven chemical tankers. Today there are nine. Um, since IPO, including dividends, the stock is up about 20% in Norway. So liquidity may not necessarily be there. However, um, the ability to raise some money in the private markets for what I think one of the panelists was saying before, a differentiating strategy is possible. And the uniqueness of, of stainless tankers is the fact that there was no other vehicle out there um, to profit from a pure chemical tankers uh, exposure. And SHIP, which is our other investment vehicle, that's more of a um, diversified fleet. We own tankers, we own um, gas carriers, we own um, dry bulk carriers, and we also own multipurpose vessel. But with regards to the private versus public, uh, which is which is the question that you asked? You know, we we have seen, depending on on the sectors that perform well. As I said, today, you know, chemical tankers are up 20%. They're trading a lot closer to NAV. Um, the diversified fleet in 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 the UK, um, it is trading at a discount to NAV. But that's that's probably a factor more of where the income trusts space in the UK lands rather than, you know, the sort of portfolio itself. Um, with the private vehicles, you don't have that exposure. You don't have to deal with investors. Yesterday, I was, in the, I was meeting with institutional investors that, you know, were raising the issue of, of the discount. You don't have that on the private markets. You realize NAV, people see that return, and whereas at SHIP, we're at 13.9 net IRR since inception over a six-year period, people still talk about discounts to NAV. Well, sometimes discounts to NAV in listed companies is, is okay because it brings a bit of fun for us to watch in the media and, uh, and, and various situations that play out. So, uh, but let me, let me switch to Darren and, and, and uh, you mentioned about stress and distress strategies and I wanted to, uh, do you see any opportunities for a counter-cyclical strategy today? or are you pivoting in, in, in different types of investments? I guess the first thing I would say is that in a super cyclical business, the only path to success is to be counter-cyclical. And shipping is, is probably the most cyclical business on earth. The real question is, is there anything to do in that way? We, we tend to be you know, really at the bottom when things are ugly. So we have very little left in traditional shipping. We still have, we still, we still own a private dry bulk vehicle, and for for a variety of reasons, we think dry bulk looks really good. But we've really pivoted to offshore the last year and a half, where 
we have been able to really invest in, you know, in the midst of bankruptcy, post-bankruptcy, and, and capitalizing on um, distressed sales, um, post-bankruptcy type sales. So that's, that's still where we see the limit, most limited residual value risk, the biggest discounts, zero order books, and really positive dynamics. Traditional shipping is nothing particularly wrong with, with wet or, and dry in particular, um, but uh, we've, we've kind of moved on. And do you position yourselves to, you know, kind of predicting or looking at when the next cycle opportunities will come along, or um, will you opportunistically raise capital when that moment arises? How do you position yourself for the future in that context? We're, we're purely opportunity driven. We don't sort of say in three years there's going to be a problem over here and therefore we should raise a fund for it today. Um, we just deal with what the world gives us with what the market gives us. Today it's offshore. Perfect. Christian, uh, switching to the opportunities, you, you mentioned some um, um, investments that you guys have done over the years, but today within the bucket that, that you mentioned across infrastructure, transportation, um, how do you allocate within those broad sectors uh, opportunities? Uh, is transportation always playing a role, or you compare it to the opportunities you see more in the traditional infra space? Yeah, and so I think it's, it's helpful to just go back to sort of you know, first principles around how we, how we think about um, investing, which is a very long-term horizon. We are a 12-year fund. Uh, we typically underwrite our investments to a 10-year hold. Um, but when thinking about residual values post that 10-year um, holds, we t take into account the remaining you know, asset life uh, in this case, uh, or the concession life in, 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 in other sectors. Um, so it's a very long-term approach, and that means that we also, when making investment decisions, we always think about the very long-term trends. Uh, we are less phased by shorter-term volatility. Our mandate is is not to benefit from short-term dislocations. It's very much a long-term mandate, more income-driven. Um, and if you can position your investment in such a way that it can benefit from capital appreciation at some point in time, that is great, but it's never our base, our base uh, case um, assumption. So, so we're much more driven by long-term trends. And then you, I guess the question you're asking, or, or the, the way I should interpret it is, what are the long-term trends that we're um, you know, that, that we're, we're looking at. So uh, one of them is, I think is obvious, energy transition, right? Energy transition um, is, is in everyone's, is, is on top of, top of the agenda for, for everyone. I think the more interesting question is, what does that mean in terms of opportunities, investable opportunities in the marine space uh, for someone like us? So I do think um, you have to think about hydrogen and increasing flows of hydrogen, what that, what that means. Um, it could mean investing in ships that can transport hydrogen. It, it can mean investing in ships that can transport hydrogen in other forms, like, for example, ammonia. Um, the emergence of the carbon capture and storage industry is, um, you know, we're witnessing, we're witnessing, witnessing it at the moment. That will create opportunities in the, in the marine space as well. Um, and it's beyond, for us, it's beyond ships. It's not just the vessels. We're also looking at the supporting infrastructure, for example, the terminals um, and potentially even the the production um, and, and storage facilities so we're looking at the whole the whole value chain so energy transition is one is one big topic then I think the the other big topic 
maybe that emerged or uh, increased in importance more recently is energy security. If you think about energy security, you very quickly, uh, especially with a European hat on, you very quickly uh, think about gas, natural gas, um, which can mean LNG, uh, it can mean, uh, or LNG shipping, it can mean uh, regasification terminals, it can mean liquefaction uh, facilities, so that whole value chain. Um, because energy security doesn't just mean geopolitical energy security, it also means being able to live with increasing amounts of um, wind and solar generation on the, on the grid, and gas can play a role there as, uh, as, a, as a transition fuel. So that's the second, uh, the second key topic. And then I would also say you know, deglobalization is, is, is something you have to think about. Um, and, and that could mean that certain sectors that have, have historically benefited from increasing trade flows are now perhaps, um, you, know, you should look at it with a, bit more, with a bit more caution. In the shipping space, perhaps that's containers. Um, so those are the, the, you know, maybe the, the long-term trends. Um, you could go further down the list, think about things like alternative finance, alternative ways of funding that are emerging as banks are pulling back from hydrocarbons in particular. That opens up you know, opportunities, uh, creates opportunities for investors such as ourselves. For example, in the, in the leasing space, which is something that fits more naturally with a, uh, an infrastructure uh, fund. Um, but th those are the, the, the long-term trends that I would, uh, that, that I would highlight. And, and let me ask you, I mean, these are the trends that drive the investment from um, you know, investment strategy, investment objective, uh, and, and microeconomic uh, yeah. situations. How do you go about at BlackRock, a huge institution and asset allocator, in terms of finding the targets within those sectors? And, and what are the things you're looking for in the companies, operators, yeah. um, uh, joint venture partners, and, yeah. and so forth that you guys invest in? Yeah, no, we're, we're very much driven by uh, themes, uh, we're, you know, thematic investors. So, you know, we have done deep dives on hydrogen, on carbon capture and storage, on uh, natural gas, um, you know, on, on ammonia. And the way we typically go about it is we would get smart on the, on the macro, first of all, to convince ourselves that uh, it's, it's the right macro to be spending time in. And then you know, we'll, we'll do a mapping of all the key players um, in, across the infrastructure space. Um, and you know, for us, we would typically only want to, to speak to the top, top five or so names in the, in the space, because what is important and what is important to, uh, to, to realize, with a closed-ended fund, you always have to think about exit uh, and how you exit um, an, an investment. Um, it, can be, it can look great when you're entering, but if you can't exit it, well, it's not going to be a good investment. So in order to, to, have, to create that exit value, it's very much about quality, quality of your, uh, in this industry, charterers, quality of your lenders, quality of your joint venture partners, operating capabilities. You need to put all of that together in order to create something that is differentiated. Um, and that's, that's what we look for. And that's what we look to also to build over time if it's, if it's not there on, on, uh, on day one. Excellent. Um, Peter, switching it over to you, um, from Swiss Marine, what are the opportunities you guys are looking right now, uh, operationally and ownership-wise? Sorry, I missed that. 
what, what opportunities are you focused right now for the growth of Swiss Marine from an operational and ownership perspective? More investment. <laughs> um, historically, 95% of our book has been, our exposure has been the next 12 months. The last few years we're looking further ahead and we're trying to gain more long-term exposure. So that means either buying ships or doing more long-term charter. So we're lengthening our book effectively because we think there's certain opportunities in the dry bulk market. And in terms of the financing opportunities to support your investments, you comment on the, the availability of financing? We find raising finance on ship finance is, is not difficult. To be fairly conservative on how much finance we put on, and that we finance everything in Japan, and that goes very easily and very quickly. Uh, Vigel is turning over to you, and you mentioned, in addition to your uh, ownership side, um, the recycling part of the business. Do you want to comment a bit about that and how you approach it, and how the interaction is with the ship owning side and the, the financing opportunities, and how recycling impacts both? Sure, yes. Uh, thank you, Pan. So, uh, from our perspective, we have uh, decided to kind of, uh, until there is definite solution on the fuel side at least and so on, we have heard all these arguments today, right? So, basically, we have decided to invest more on the VITAT sides of assets and uh, basically uh, we're trying to apply the philosophy of uh, reduce, like in the consumptions and, and so on, reuse the older assets and uh, basically improve them in terms of the consumptions and their efficiency through efficiency uh, through efficient uh, operations management and eventually uh, marrying this in a way with uh, uh, with our expertise being the recycle to lead the, uh, the units to a proper uh, recycling manner as well. Uh, so um, that's how it started the whole story with Lila Global and uh, the uh, first uh, assets uh, being acquired a few years ago. Uh, thereafter, of course, uh, we have applied a policy, I think that has been counter-cyclical, uh, going back to your very first question, and I think we have been uh, successful and lucky to a certain extent uh, in that respect. Um, uh, yeah, and we have done there, uh, done, uh, we have done uh, well there, for sure. Now, um, on your question about the recycling, uh, I think there are uh, a lot of uh, developments taking place there on the regulatory front. Uh, we, see that, we see those having implication to ship owners uh, with questions being asked uh, at the time of a new building, like uh, how an asset is going to be recycled probably 25 and 30 years later on, uh, with requirements from financiers to basically uh, make that contractual obligations throughout the life of the ship until uh, the unit is finally uh, at the recycling yard. Uh, so, yeah, it's a dynamic environment that we see a lot of changes taking place. Uh, comparing to what it was probably 10 years ago, it's a totally different environment, infrastructure-wise, at the recycling facilities. They're adapting to the regulations on that front of the industry as well. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting environment to be in. And in terms of capital available, do you uh, look for any um, outside sources for capital for the recycling business, or is that all uh, proprietary capital that you guys deploy? Well, uh, we do from time to time, yes. Uh, I think uh, the availability even on the uh, vintage asset front has started becoming more uh, easily. I think it was uh, properly presented uh, in the previous uh, panel. It was properly said in the previous uh, panel uh, from the representative of City that basically through the past few years, basically, shipping has made quite good 
money, I think. So allowing, uh, giving lenders the confidence to invest in various segments there. And we've been seeing that. Yes, it's becoming more expensive comparing to probably uh, some uh, financing coming out of uh, Japan, as was just mentioned, and so on, but there are options there. Um, switching a little bit to the broader regulatory environment and, and coming back to you, Nicholas, both as a regulated investment manager and, and yeah, having vehicles uh, that are listed, how does the broader environment with uh, sanctions regimes and, uh, and, uh, and in impact in investments through the geopolitical changes from uh, terrorist attacks and, and, and the likes on uh, vessels uh, impact your, uh, both your investment decisions but also the day-to-day -day, uh, management and operational of your portfolio? So as you can imagine, we have a few people that spend a lot of time going through uh, on the compliance side for our, in particular, the publicly listed regulated entities. Um, it is, of course, our, our fiduciary duty in any ways to do that, but when it is even more so regulated and required by the appropriate authorities, um, we, have, we have quite a significant um, number of people that, that spend time to make sure that um, there is no um, you know, where, where does the vessel trade, um, that all the uh, applicable rules and regulations are, are within what we, what we are doing. So certainly, um, I think it is a practice, though, that even your, your banks before were requiring you to do in any case. So although we have traditionally been a very low leverage um, type of um, acquirer, so we have very low leverage on our fleet and most of the time we don't have any leverage. Um, if you want to um, make sure that you don't breach any of your other um, uh, covenants or other that you're, um, you're effectively operating within, it is something that you need to spend the time. And of course it, it, it is um, very important that, you know, especially for an investment manager, to make sure that they're not caught off guard. Um, so we, get, we educate ourselves. Uh, we have people that, whose job is specifically that. Um, and that, of course, adds to the amount of time that uh, all the resources spend. But I think it should be the case. All the, all the resources should be trained and to know what are the things that are, we can do and what are the things that we cannot do, of course. Uh Peter, uh, your comment on, on the same topic a bit, like how do you um, protect yourself from the global regulatory environment, the ongoing sanctions, and, uh, and, and, and then the routes you follow for your vessels from the various um, situations? Yeah, I was reflecting just on this. It's actually quite funny because it's not an issue anymore. Because in dry bulk, either ships trade Russia, in which case they're not a period anymore because the owner wants the premium himself, and the ships which are on period um, don't want to trade to, to Russia because with us it's always the head owner, is he willing to go or not? Um, so whereas in the beginning of the conflict we had, we had a lot of big Russian customers and a lot of contractual business where we spent a lot of time figuring out what we could do and what we could not do. The last 12 months is a non-issue. I've not had to look at any sanctions issues anymore the last 12 months. 
Yeah, I think the, the you know, commentaries that here from me is that I, I would expect to see sanctions continue to be deployed and used as a tool by various governments to, you know, address various conflicts. Uh, so it, it, you know, today, or it's still Russia, tomorrow will be another state. So I think the technology and, and education in terms of analyzing what that means in a, in a global business um, it will definitely need to be there, but uh, it, it will take different forms, obviously, going forward. Well, obviously, we've had a lot of practice and have learned a lot <laughs> in the first year of the conflict. All I'm saying is the last 12 months, for us, we've not seen it anymore. And uh, are there any other regulatory changes or that, that sort of impact your, your, your approach and analysis? Well, we're all geared, getting geared up now and starting to deal with the ETS, right, European Emission Trading Scheme. That, is, that has been the, the, the thing, setting up that properly, being able to deal with it, agreeing with all the owners retroactively on all the period charters, how you incorporate it, how you deal with it. That has been the, the thing we've spent time on the last six months. Got it. Darren, in, in terms of the opportunities going forward, um, what do you see as the most you know, exciting opportunities for an organization like yours and, uh, and, and how do you approach them vis-a-vis -vis the companies also that you invest in and the opportunities that you approach? Do you look to partner with uh, good operators, invest in, in good companies? How do you analyze the, the opportunities in front of you? Yeah, our model historically has been start with distress and then see what the opportunity is, inject capital, build things, partner with good people. Um, I don't, that's not going to change. There's always something to do. And, um, you know, across, you know, the various shipping maritime segments, it, it does seem that there is nearly always something to do. Um, so as I, as I said earlier, we've, we've really been focused more on offshore the last year and a half. We've invested both in uh, PSV, OSV space and in, um, and in rigs, um, principally because we see very low residual value risk. Um, we see the opportunity to own tier one assets at uh, fractions of construction cost. And um, the industry backdrop with, with basically no order books and this real sort of you know, ESG constraints and investor distaste is, is really a good setup in our view. So that's, that's really been our focus and most likely will be where, we're, where we continue to concentrate over the next few years until that industry normalizes. In, in, in that same period, what do you see as the biggest risks from, uh, for, for your uh, exposure in the sector? Um, you've always got exogenous risks. So I, I, it's, it's, it's the unknowables. I think that's, that's what we worry most about from here. Um, but otherwise, from a cyclical perspective and from, a, let's say, a balance sheet perspective, um, we, we feel comfortable because of our, the prices paid and, and um, the, either the balance sheet or our control over the balance sheet. But it's really the exogenous event that always has me worried the next COVID, the next whatever it might be. The good news is a lot of, you know, shipping has this very peculiar characteristic that most, that everybody in this room is, is, is familiar with. We tend to, this industry often benefits from geopolitical events, from, from chaos, from conflict. We're seeing that, of course, now. 
but that's, um, it is an interesting element from a portfolio perspective that I think is underappreciated outside of the shipping world. And, and let me ask you one last question on that same theme. In terms of the financing opportunities for your investments, um, you utilize debt uh, to support your investments in the sector, and, and if you do, how do you find the, the financing markets? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we're generally very debt-averse people. Um, we will borrow money against contracts, is generally the perspective. Um, Debt is incredibly tight and expensive in offshore, even much more so than in shipping, which is generally supportive. You know, you see, you know, no real construction activity, one or two PSVs. Uh, certainly no rigs are gonna be built. Um, the constraints of expensive financing are real and they're very supportive, they're very positive. It means that you need much more equity. It means very few people can, can participate or play and you have very little speculative activity. So this is a really healthy backdrop. It's a part of the reason that we're so positive on it. Vageli, over to you in terms of, you know, forward opportunities. Uh, for wh Where do you see most of the activity for you and some of the concerns that we've spoken about? How do they impact your business in terms of the regulatory sanctions regimes and, and so forth? Well, uh, from Saxon's perspective, uh, we are pretty clear. We are not uh, doing anything that is not in line with the regulations. Uh, uh, so basically, uh, um, uh, DPKYC in that respect and so on. I mean, you're laughing, but there are others that they're doing it, right? But we are commercially oriented, but not so much. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, Saxon's, no, we, we are very careful with that. Uh, we have exited sectors because of the risk in that respect in the recent past. Um, but definitely for us, uh, we're gonna, there are going to be busy years coming up with the recycling, right? I mean, uh, uh, recycling remains our uh, main business, uh, our main focus there. Uh, it's been quiet over the past uh, two, three years since COVID, basically, with everything booming. Uh, I think in the years to come, we're going to see uh, busy times there again, and uh, we remain focused there to be ready and geared up when that time comes. Now, on the shipping front, uh, frankly, right now, I don't know what to tell you. I don't see something immediately. I mean, uh, we are at the very healthy markets. I don't know to tell you where to invest or not to invest uh, or disinvest, you know, uh, exits from somewhere. Everything seems very healthy. Um, and I guess the geopolitical events will keep on having a big impact there. So I think uh, because of the philosophy of our company being uh, managing the risk basically always, right, and uh, trying to have uh, uh, to monetize the right opportunities at the right time, being a privately held entity, we have this flexibility, right, the quick decision making. Uh, I think we're just going to be alert on that front to see what's the future holding for us. Um, Christian, I think in the past, in other industries, we've seen a much faster consolidation. I think shipping, despite a, a few deals that have taken place over the years, still remains a very fragmented business. Yeah. Um, how do you view that and you think that could change? Is there, is there going to be a drive for consolidation in the current environment with the regulatory regime or a, 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 a more highly regulated environment? Um, be, could, be, could that be a drive for consolidation? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic. I think if you take a step back and think about why consolidation happens in, in other industries, it's typically to gain more market share, which allows you to 
to improve pricing, improve margins. It's about economies of scale. I do think that it's that's probably less so the case in uh, in, in, in shipping. I mean, if you go from five to seven percent market share in, in in a particular segment, that is not necessarily going to give you significantly enhanced uh, pricing power. And putting together two companies is difficult. The different philosophies, and I'm talking about the, the shipping space, different philosophies, different operational teams, it, it is difficult. So you could end up with a situation where one plus one doesn't equal three, but it equals you know, 1.8, and, and, and that's, that's challenging. So I don't think it's, a, at least from my perspective, a particularly um, sort of, you know, big topic uh, in, in, in the shipping space. I do think that you know, organic growth in the growth segments um, is, is what is much, much more interesting. If you have an operating platform and you can leverage that platform to grow organically, um, that, is, that is interesting. Um, consolidation is, is I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, it's tricky. And, the, and the, the private to public play, I guess, obviously for you, I assume private well, companies. Well, we, we, in, in our fund, we, uh, we can only do invest private. into private uh, companies, and we've taken a, a number of public companies private. Um, but, you know, this public versus private discussion is, uh, there's no right or wrong answer. It really depends on your strategic objecti objectives as a, as a company. If you... You know, if you're public, it can be great. If you want to raise capital, if you want to create a liquidity event for the existing shareholders, but it can also create a lot of work for the management team. Um, and um, there could be rationale in, you know, in private ownership. If the market is mispricing your stock, you can't raise equity um, at appropriate valuations. Your management team is still very busy talking to investors, uh, preparing reporting. So I think it's... It, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, there is no right or wrong um, answer, and that, that applies to, to all sectors. Um, Nicholas, uh, as we're approaching the end, I uh, just wanted some closing remarks, and assuming we're doing this in, in, in five years from now, and you're looking back at your first five years at Tufton, where will the returns have come from? I think, first of all, we... Uh, you know, Tufton has been really successful in managing money for uh, investors over time, and it's about the long run, and that's what we're in for because this is the industry that we specialize in. So that will not change. That will be the same, and hopefully we can continue the same performance that we had over the years. What, what will change is other themes and, and topics that perhaps Tufton has not done um, with regards to... Uh, venture capital. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the changes that we all want to see when it comes to the assets themselves, and some previous panelists mentioned the changes that also need to happen, perhaps at the, at the hardware level, at, at, um, at the software level as well. And, you know, we, have, we see deal flow without even having a, a venture capital arm, and I think this is something that we will be spending some time on over the next five years because innovation is important and, and we want to contribute to that. And given that we have the industry specialization, we would like to do that. Um, otherwise, it's, um, it's a question of, of, of growing the platform with more good people because this is a people's business like any other business. 
Uh, now picking the right investments, you know, we want to, we like chemicals. I'm happy to hear that, that Peter is getting longer because we also like dry bulk, probably a little bit smaller, but we like the counter, if, if one can call it counter cyclicality of it today, but we like it as well. Um, and I like what Darren said too. I mean, offshore is something that traditionally Tufton has done, and it is a space that we also think is probably a good time to, to, to invest some capital in. Perfect, and, and I think, uh, Nicholas, you'll be pleased to hear the news that Tufton is launching a VC fund uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, new activity. Uh, Peter, some closing remarks from you? Sorry, some closing remarks. Okay. Um, why do we look for a longer profile? In the end, there's a big fleet built 2008-2012, which will have to be replaced sooner or later. There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, on how you should be fueling it, whether these le capital investment levels are still right. We think sooner or later there will be opportunities in that. Is the, the, the fuel and changes that are coming in that respect going to be a big um, uh, event for change in the industry, do you believe? Why well, we see it more as something which will slow down investment to less than it otherwise would be because there's this uncertainty. Uh, we think that might be provide interesting opportunities. Um, Darren, some closing remarks and thoughts? Nothing more to say. <laughs> Listen to Peter. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen, Vagelis, start with you. Any closing remarks? Uh, not really, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I can disagree with everything that has been said so far on this panel. I mean, just a note, I think, uh, in continuation of uh, what Peter just said on the Cape size, actually, 2008-2012, I think it's worth keeping an eye at the new building order book there, which is quite low. I think there are some opportunities there, probably, for someone to consider. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting year ahead, generally, for all the segments of shipping. So let's see how it's going to go. Thank you. And Christian? What, what sector will the next BlackRock investment be? No, look, I think um, we're at a, what I would say is, is that we're at a, a critical um, point in time now, uh, in particular from an energy transition perspective. And um, we need to be very careful around where you deploy capital. You don't want to end up with a stranded asset. Um, but you also don't want to overpay for something that is, that is hyped. So just finding that balance is not uh, is not easy, and I think that's that's that requires um, that requires thought with every investment decision. Um, so it will be exciting and interesting. Yes, Nicholas. May, may I have two Go ahead. Maybe I'll just take the last part of your question because it's an easy one for us, having just done a few rounds with our public uh, entity shareholders. A lot of, uh, so it's a Guernsey company. A Guernsey company is not for all investors. Some, you know, foundations that are based in, in Europe um, do not and cannot invest in offshore jurisdictions. So some of our investors specifically tell us, we love your story and what you've done in the public markets. We want you to have private vehicles onshore, example, Luxembourg, and invest in. So that's an easy answer to your question, actually. 
I should, I should, answer, I should answer the first question, question Peter says. Um, no, it's actually a great question, and it's really interesting. Public versus private, and how do we think about that? Because we have done, we have done quite a bit of both. Um, the issue that we tend to have with public companies is that the capital allocation tends to be pro-cyclical rather than counter-cyclical. Um, on the other hand, private companies will trade at, by definition, private asset value um, or asset, net asset value, whereas public companies, you can get discounts. What we try to do is we're really focused on residual value risk. There have been times where, for example, when we did a, a, a tanker joint venture with some of our friends are in the room, where we, could acquire, where we acquired um, Aframaxes in 2018 just above scrap value. We couldn't create that in the public markets and we couldn't have the negative control um, that, that we could have in a, in a private transaction. On the other hand, there have been times when we can find wonderful management teams. They're, they're rare, but they do exist, wonderful management teams, and you can acquire, you can create ships at an enormous discount, a couple million dollars. Um, so those are very unusual and you can never create those privately. So we, 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 we try to be flexible and, and we ask ourselves what is the best uh, risk controlled position given a broad-based distress. We set up a company in dry bulk because the public balance sheets were uninvestable in 2016, so we set up our own private bulk company with very low leverage to capture the distressed asset values. So those are just examples. I think it depends, as all, it's the answer to most questions, um, and you just have to be thoughtful about what you're trying to do and how you're trying to control risk. And you'd also, you'd also have to be wary of your respective investment mandate and what you have undertaken vis-a-vis -vis your investors. Because for some of these guys, investing in a public company may not be even feasible from a governance control. Uh, Correct. Uh, yeah. I can comment briefly on the uh, buying to companies, owning shares in companies versus um, just buying assets. Because we've done both and we will continue to do, to do both. What I would say is that um, if you're in, just investing into an asset, you, we will look for a narrow range of outcomes on the investment. I'll give you one example. We invested, and this is not in the shipping space, it's in the uh, pipeline space. So we invested into Abu Dhabi's oil pipeline uh, system. It's a joint venture with, with, um, with, with Adnoc. Um, that is a, the way the investment is structured. It's a long-term agreement with, with Adnoc for them to essentially lease the, the pipeline uh, from us. So the range of outcomes on that investment is relatively narrow because not that much can go wrong, assuming that Adnoc will continue to pay you. But there's also no, not much upside we can create. So narrow range of outcomes. Um, when investing into companies um, with management teams, the range of outcomes is, is typically wider on the downside as well as on the upside. Um, I think Gaslock is a good example in the, in the shipping space. I got, we, we are not invested into the assets, we're invested into the, into the top co. Um, and that allows you to sh shape the strategic direction of the, of the business much more. You can, uh, for example, invest in new builds, you can sell older vessels, you have a seat around the table when these investment, investment decisions or strategic decisions are being taken. Um, both work for us as a, as, a, as a fund and it's really about portfolio construction, so we have a bit of both in our, in our portfolio across sectors.
Perfect. Thank you very much. I'll enjoy the drinks. Thank you.